The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. We come now to a time of opening the scriptures together, and so I want to invite you to open your copy of God's Word and turn with me in the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, to chapter 19, Revelation 19, under the heading Rejoicing in Heaven. And as you're turning to Revelation 19, whether you've got a hard copy Bible or you've got your tablet or your phone or wherever you've got, do come with me into the book of Revelation in chapter 19 because everybody loves a good story, don't they? Everybody loves a great story. And I think it's a wonderful thing that we often call that Luke chapter 2 reading of the birth of Jesus Christ. We call it the Christmas story. Uh, because, again, we love to hear about those good tidings of great joy, of Jesus coming into the world and telling the story from one generation to another is just the most delightful thing. Well, this Advent, we have been looking to place the Christmas story inside the context of the larger story of the whole Bible. And we've been doing that by going into the book of Revelation and seeing how the Christmas story of the narratives of the gospel accounts relates to the story of Jesus' second advent. We think of his first advent, his humble coming in Bethlehem, but his second advent will be with, with a coming with majesty and with glory. And we've been looking to draw together these two realities and see how they fit inside this grand story of the Bible, the story of God's salvation. And we have been calling our Advent series this year, Christ Triumphant, Christmas in the book of Revelation. Well, we come now to Revelation 19, which is nearing the very end of the book. And so I imagine you can be anticipating some of the realities that we're going to be seeing together this evening. But as we prepare to hear God's word Let's first pause and ask His blessing upon the Scriptures to us tonight. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we pause now to say that we love Your Word. We're so thankful that You've given to us the Scriptures. And so we pray now that as the Holy Spirit so inspired John to record this incredible revelation for us, that that same Spirit might also rest upon us tonight. That as we hear, as we read, as we consider your revelation, Lord, that you would move upon us to transform us in the sight of your glory. And so, Lord, come now, we pray, in the power of your Spirit to help us as we sit under the authority of your word. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus, our King. Amen. And now, hear the Word of God from Revelation 19, and we're looking at the first ten verses of Revelation 19 this morning, this evening. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. 
For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cry out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt And give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And an angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So let's Keep our Bibles open here in Revelation 19 as we consider what this text means for us on an evening like Christmas Eve. Well, let me, let me just give you briefly some introductory details to the book of Revelation generally, whether you've been with us throughout our Advent series or not. There's some really essential components about the book of Revelation that we must know as we approach it. The book of Revelation is written to the early first century church, which was a very small group, but greatly persecuted by the mighty Roman Empire. By outward appearances, the church is small, impotent, and weak, and faces the impossible task of spreading the message of Jesus all over the world, especially in light of the fact that the great Roman Empire was largely opposed to the message of Jesus when the church was trying to spread it. The book of Revelation is written most fundamentally to encourage that early church that their purposes to spread the gospel of Jesus align with the very purposes of God to bring all things to their final end through Jesus Christ. That is to say that the book of Revelation was intended to tell the church that they were on a winning team, that the mission that Jesus had called them to was a mission that would not fail and could never fail despite all of the persecution they might face. At the end, at the ultimate end, Jesus wins. That's the message of the book of Revelation. In that sense, it's really quite simple. And what we've been trying to do is, in one sense, demystify the book of Revelation and make it more accessible because so often people think that the book of Revelation is inaccessible and they're uncertain on how to approach it. And even if they do, they come away discouraged, which is, again, the exact opposite of what the book is intended to do. 
And so if you read the book of Revelation and come away with anything but encouragement and hope and strengthened faith, you're not reading it correctly because it's intended to produce in your heart confidence in the gospel and confidence in your God. Now, the reason why oftentimes, even on a surface level, the book of Revelation is seen as a bit inaccessible is because it is a different genre of literature. It is apocalyptic literature in the Bible, and that word actually comes from the very first verse of chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, which speaks of the revelation of Jesus Christ, and the word revelation is this word apocalypsis, which is where we get our word apocalyptic from, and that is to say that the literature of Revelation uses incredible signs and symbols and pictures to communicate basic gospel truths to us. These are signs and symbols and pictures that dazzle us and shock us and amaze us and cause us to fix our gaze upon the glories of heaven and be filled with wonder. So here's the one-sentence summary of the book of Revelation. God rules all history and will bring all history to its appointed end through Jesus Christ. That's what the book is all about. The book of Revelation here then in chapter 19 has a way of speaking into what will be true one day and what is presently true right now for us. We live in a already but not yet reality. There are things that are present and a present reality right now for the church and there are things that we're waiting for. Revelation 19 speaks of that very reality. Where is all of this headed? Where is history headed? Where is your life headed? I want us to see three things in Revelation 19 this evening. I want us to see, first of all, the song that is sung. The song, and then secondly, the supper. What's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then third, the Savior. The song, the supper, and the Savior is what we're going to see in Revelation 19 tonight. So first of all, the song. The song. At verse 1, John says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. He's going to introduce us to this song. Now, twice already, John has been giving us a peek into the songs of heaven. The songs of salvation that are sung in heaven's throne room that celebrate the triumph of God's redemptive work through Jesus Christ. We've seen a couple of them already during our Advent series, but if you want to flip back to chapter 7, in chapter 7 and verse 10, we heard the song of salvation where those in heaven cry out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's Revelation 7, verse 10. We also saw another salvation song in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 10, where John hears the loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. These songs of salvation are present in heaven, echoing, reverberating through heaven's throne room, calling all people to worship God And we come to Revelation 19 and the final song that is present in the book of 
Revelation, but this song is set against what is actually a great catastrophe. It's set against the backdrop of a great catastrophe. When John says in chapter 19, verse 1, after this, the after this refers to a scene change that's taking place as John's vision shifts. But what he has been looking at is the details of chapter 17 and 18, which describe the catastrophic fall and judgment of the earthly city of Babylon. When you go back through it, it requires a a strong stomach to stay on the scene while the seals are broken and the trumpets are blown and the bowls are poured out. But when Babylon is destroyed and brought to ruin, it represents all evil, all wickedness, all sin, all death, all of the influence of the curse on this world being destroyed. It represents the justice of God's judgment finally come in fullness. In fact, we didn't look at this text during our Advent season, but back in Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs cry out asking God, Lord, how long, how long will you let evil reign on the earth? How long will you endure wickedness? How long will you endure such terrible things to occur in the world in which you have created. Maybe you know what it's like to ask that question. Lord, why, why does this happen? Why this wickedness? Why this evil? Seemingly unsensible in its purposes. Why does this exist? And the martyrs ask that question in the face of the church's persecution. Lord, how long will you allow this persecution to continue. But the Bible tells us that the judge of all the earth will do right. And John reports that the justice of God's judgment comes against evil and comes against wickedness. In chapter 17 and 18, you have the setting right of all things where full and final justice is meted out, wickedness is destroyed, righteousness is assured, and God vindicates His purpose in the world. The reason why it's important to understand that is because as you come into chapter 19, if we don't have an adequate perception of the catastrophic fall of the world into sin and the necessity of its judgment, if we don't appropriately understand that, then we can never adequately appreciate the glory of God's salvation. Because it is from sin and death and the catastrophe of the fall that God has redeemed us through His Son. And the good news is good because the bad news is bad. But now our, our direction goes toward the glory of God's salvation. And so John says, after this, after these things, after the catastrophic judgment of Babylon, I heard, he says in verse 1, what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude. He moves now to heaven and the glories of this song of salvation. This is, in chapter 19, the original Hallelujah Chorus. People love that Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. You might be interested to know, actually, that the word Hallelujah is a, a Hebrew word, a joining of two things, praise and God. Hallelujah. It's prominently featured in the book of Psalms. But the word hallelujah is only in the New Testament four times. That's it. And every single one of those instances is in this text. 
This is the great hallelujah chorus of heaven. You see the word hallelujah in verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. And what John is doing as he speaks of the glories of this song of salvation is he is approaching what seems to be almost indescribable. John has to search for words, and even when he finds words, he can only express himself by way of a metaphor. He says, I heard what seemed to be. He says that in verse 1. He says what seemed to be in verse 6. He also says it later on in verse 12, meaning there is no language that can perfectly and adequately describe the glories of heaven's worship. It only seemed to be John stretches to the final reaches of his language capacity to say, it seems like this and it's glorious. Salvation is the plot and purpose of human history. It is the theme of Scripture. God's overtaking of the catastrophe which we have made to rescue His creation, to recover the world, and to fully and finally extend His dominion over all things. Notice how the song builds, moving toward the throne. In verse 1 to 3, it's the song of the great multitude saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. They celebrate God's judgments because they are just and true. He acts in righteousness. This great multitude praises. See also then in verse 4, the next echo is of the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Do you remember the 24 elders? They represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles cumulatively representing the church of Jesus Christ in both ages of Old and New Testament. And those four living creatures that surround the throne, giving endless praise and worship to the Lord God, from them comes this voice of worship as they fall down in verse 4, saying, Amen, hallelujah. They agree with what God has done. They agree with the justice of His judgment and the bringing of the fullness of His kingdom. And then in verse 5, it's the voice, in verse 5, the voice from the throne saying, praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. From the great multitude to the elders and the four living creatures and the voice from the throne itself. What's interesting about that is that it's the exact opposite description of what we saw in chapter 5. In chapter 5, we saw the praise in heaven as the voices of the 24 elders and the four living creatures and then the myriads and then every living creature. In chapter 5, praise was moving outward. Here in chapter 19, it's coming back as it moves closer and closer in proximity to the throne. That is to say, this is the infinite reverberation of heaven's praise of the Lord God Almighty, the endless worship of God. That's why we sing in the Christmas hymn, O ye heights of heaven, adore Him. Angels host His praises sing. All dominions bow before Him and extol our God and King. Let no tongue on earth be silent. Every voice in concert ring evermore and evermore. Heaven is a place of infinite worship and praise to the one who sits upon the throne. That is the song of salvation here. 
but not just a song. There is also a supper. We see, moving on then into verse 6, that there's more rejoicing to be had. Even more rejoicing than the infinite echoes of reverberation and praise comes in verse 6, as John says, Then I heard, again, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. That is to say, it's even louder than what I heard before. If it could possibly be louder, it's louder. And what do they say? Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. There's a marriage feast in heaven, the Bible says. That this great story of God's salvation is the story of a marriage covenant, a marriage relationship between God and His people. What we're offered here in the Scripture, in this picture of marriage supper, and, and, and uh, they're really Jewish traditions that we have to really understand because uh, John is explaining these things in a way that would definitely make sense to, to a Jewish person and then later on a Jewish Christian, but different cultures and different traditions have different experiences of engagement and betrothal and wedding ceremonies and feasts. They differ from culture to culture and age to age, but John is speaking specifically about a Hebrew betrothal which after a given period gives way to a wedding ceremony and feast. The betrothal, the Hebrew betrothal, is a rite that binds together the bride and the bridegroom into a legally recognized relationship where they are promised to one another and again, legally recognized. That's why when we read about in the gospel narratives, when, when Joseph first hears about what has happened to Mary, it says he resolves to divorce, divorce her quietly, even though they were only betrothed. They haven't had the full experience of marriage yet. They were betrothed, but yet he considered divorcing her because it was a legally recognized relationship. But the metaphor of betrothal and marriage is essential in the story of God's salvation throughout the Bible. The metaphor permeates the whole story. Listen to the way God speaks of Israel in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 54, verse 5 and 6 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Isaiah 62, verse 5, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The metaphor of God as bridegroom pursuing his bride is the way the Bible tells the story of God's salvation. Most especially seen in the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 19, as God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. Jesus himself in Matthew 22 compared the kingdom of God to the king throwing a wedding feast for his son who receives his bride. And so that gives us even more clarity to this picture of marriage and betrothal, where in the New Testament, Jesus is featured as the bridegroom. 
And the people of God, the church, are pictured as the bride of Christ, like in Ephesians 5, verse 32. This picture of the bride being prepared for her husband comes out especially later on in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, where the bride is prepared and presented to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And the reason why this is important, and the reason why I think it's especially relevant and encouraging to us, is that in the Hebrew culture, there was often a waiting period between the betrothal and the wedding, while the bridegroom and the bride lived separately. They are in different places. During this time, a dowry was arranged, a payment. A payment to be given. And when the sum was paid in full, then the wedding feast could commence. On the day of the wedding, the bridegroom would come in procession to meet the bride where she lived and then take his bride to where they would make their new home. There the wedding feast was to be celebrated in their home of marriage, covenant, and love. Why is that important? What does it look like? Can you see the story of the gospel in that? The story of salvation throughout all of the Bible. The bride is the church. She is chosen from all eternity. And throughout the whole Old Testament, the announcement is made. You have been chosen to receive this loving relationship. And the Son of God comes, assuming our flesh and blood, and with a promise, a betrothal is made. I will be yours, and you will be mine. And then with that same flesh and blood, the bridegroom offers up the dowry and pays the price with his own life, given on the cross of Calvary. And at the time of waiting, this present time of waiting is seen from the perspective of eternity as just a little while until the bridegroom comes in glorious procession to receive his bride and there to take her home to live with him forever. The church waits, dressed in white linens, the Bible says, clothed with Christ's own righteousness, made pure and spotless and holy. This is not a purity and a righteousness that comes from us, but rather from Christ himself as he purifies his bride for the marriage feast as it is celebrated and all of heaven rejoices that the marriage of the Lamb has finally come. And who is invited? Who is invited to the banquet? They are all those who have responded to this gift of salvation, who have been clothed in white garments and seated at the table of the Lamb. This is where all of history is moving, the Bible says, toward this grand feast. And yes, yes, the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of this reality, but it can't possibly compare to the glories of what will be when we see our Savior face to face as He comes to receive us 
to himself. So, what should we say about our Savior? Isn't that what Christmas is really for? It's thinking about Jesus. We've seen the song of his salvation. We've seen the, the supper, the marriage supper. But what should we say about the Savior? What should we say about him? The Bible says, Blessed are those who are invited. Blessed are those who receive him. As John sees all of these things, as he receives the instruction to write it down and speak of the glories of those invited, the blessings that come to those who are invited, John has his knees buckle under the weight of this glory, doesn't he? You see what happens? Verse 10, Then I fell down. I fell down at his feet. John is falling down at the feet of an angel at the weight of so much glory. And this angel responds to him, Don't worship me. I'm just a servant. I'm just a created being like you. Fall before him only. Worship God. That brings it full circle for us, I hope. Because isn't that what happened on the very first night in Bethlehem's manger? When the shepherds came to fall at the feet of Jesus, even though he was only laying in a manger, they fell down before him. And the Magi later on coming to worship this promised king. Or in the way that Revelation is saying it, this promised husband who has finally come to redeem and ransom his bride and to bring her to his heavenly home forever where sin will no longer rest upon us with a weight, where all of our sorrows will be cast away, where all of the tears that we have shed living under this cursed world will be wiped away. And they worshipped Jesus on that night. And it makes sense because worshipping Jesus Christ is the point of all existence. That's what you were made for. To worship Jesus Christ. To fall at His feet as the angel directs John. And this is how, this is how history ends. This is how eternity begins. This picture is what Jesus came to accomplish. That's why Jesus came to Bethlehem as a humble child to make this picture a reality. We must focus our attention on him this Christmas Eve for who he is. This child in Bethlehem's manger is the glorious Christ, the triumphant Christ, the lamb come to redeem his bride. And so what all of that means is that on Christmas Eve, I just want to offer you the opportunity to renew your hope in Jesus. To express your love for Him. Your thankfulness for His mercy. To renew that hope, or perhaps maybe for the first time, 
to give Him your loving affection and trust, and then to join heaven and fall down before Him in worship. Dear friends, this is where the world is headed, and it is a glorious scene. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise You. We praise You because that is what You created us to do. We find the fullness of our expressed purpose as we give to You our loving affection. And so, Lord, receive it from us. Receive it from us tonight, even with scattered hopes and broken hearts and confused and doubts. Lord, wherever we are, whatever station of life we're in, Meet us there that we might worship you in spirit and truth. And so receive it from us and perfect it in us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given your Son that we might be redeemed and called holy and pure, blameless and spotless, to be accepted into your presence for all eternity. How we thank you now. In the matchless name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.